look at this place. Spring break, almost 40 of our folks are in Oklahoma today, and if they were here, I don't know where they would sit. Um, <laughs> man, it's so good to see you all here. If you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, let me just welcome you. If I haven't had a chance to introduce myself to you personally, my name is Jason. I have the honor of being pastor here at the church, uh, serving Solid Rock Church with uh, five other elders, um, uh, among whom Ken, who just prayed, serves as well. You'll get to meet David Darlene in just a moment, uh, Daniel and Billy and Larry also serving, and, and around you, if you're visiting with us, you're surrounded by an incredible church family. Um, I said this last week on Twitter, and I mean it. Even if I wasn't pastor here, and I was just looking for a church in this area, I'm, I'm telling you, they don't pay me to say this, I would go to this church. Um, you are surrounded by an amazing church family that loves Jesus more than they love themselves and enjoy living that out daily in community. And so welcome to our church. We're glad you're here. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning to get started. And then from there, we'll go to Matthew, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We, um, under the seats around you, we put Bibles. Matter of fact, our, um, our uh, worship prep team this morning went around and made sure there were black hardback Bibles under all the seats. Um, if you don't own a copy of God's Word, please take that home. That's our free gift to you. We want you to have a Bible that you can take home and write in, and that's yours. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, those are in the seats in front of you as well. Um, feel free to snag one of those as we get started. Um, so, so we've been talking a lot this year um, about the excitement of what God is doing, and we've talked a lot about growing as a church. And so um, what, what I want you to hear is we're not talking about it hoping that it will happen. We're talking about it because it's happening. And, and so we're going to spend our time today in God's Word looking at what we mean when we talk about or we say we're a church on mission and God is growing our church. What is it that we mean? Are we simply talking about attendance or finances or new buildings? Or is there something more significant than that going on below the surface, behind the scenes, oftentimes in our prayer rooms or in my office while you're in here singing? Um, there's an amazing work happening in community groups and counseling ministries and men's and women's ministry. Student ministry is rocking it on Wednesday nights. Kids ministry, they're rocking it over there on Sundays and Wednesday nights as well. So what do we mean when we say the church is growing? What does that mean? So we're going to start in 1 Corinthians 3 uh, in just a second. But what I want to do is I want to, I want to just for a second talk about the explosion of the first church in Jerusalem. And I think we can learn a lot from how that church started and what we see there. And so if you... Um, if you think about it, so Jesus, after the resurrection, meets with his disciples, and he's down to 11 because Judas has bailed and hung himself, so he's got 11 remaining, and these are the 11 that he commissions to go take the gospel and, and start the church. And so in Acts 1, by the time we get to Acts 1, verse 15 or so, uh, there's about 120 followers of Jesus. Okay? Now, while Jesus was on earth, his ministry, crowds would gather, thousands would gather. But when it came down to the nitty-gritty, who's going to start the church, there's about 120 is what Acts 1 tells us. And they're meeting in the upper room. They're praying together. They're seeking God together. And they're waiting on the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had promised. And so Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls. This is Pentecost falls on these followers as they're praying in such a way that the building shakes, but more importantly, their hearts are filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so then as you follow Acts 2, Peter stands up and preaches, and by the time we get to Acts 2, 41, you've got 3,000 new Christians. One sermon later, right? One sermon later. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, verse 5, it's being described as over 5,000 Christians. 
By the time you get to Acts 21, around verse 20 or so, the number of Christians is described by the Greek word myrios, which we translate into myriads, which literally means countless thousands or thousands upon thousands. Now, the guy, the, the, the guy who's writing Luke that God is using to write down, I'm sorry, Acts, is Luke. Luke is the one who's authoring Acts, and he was a physician. He was somebody who took numbers very seriously, a very calculated author. And so by the time we get to Acts 21, he can no longer calculate. So Acts 2, about 3,000. Acts 4, about 5,000. Acts 21, countless thousands of followers of Jesus. Now, attendance alone right, doesn't equate to growth, right, because you can put, in a, put on a big event at AT&T Stadium and market it well, and you can draw thousands. So just numbers alone uh, don't indicate the kind of growth we're talking about, but if we look at what's happening on the ground with the new church, remember that Jesus told his followers in, uh, in Luke chapter 9, if anybody's going to come after me, you've got to be prepared to take up your own cross and follow me on a daily basis. There's gonna, this is going to be a hard uphill struggle and battle. There's a lot of hard work before us as my church launches. And so by the time we get to Acts chapter 6, uh, the, the ministry had grown such that the apostles couldn't keep up with everything. They were being run ragged. So they then select uh, some men to help out. These are known quite possibly as the first deacons to step in and serve and take care of waiting the tables and make sure needs were met so that the apostles could continue doing this powerful ministry of word and teaching and prayer. And then Acts 7, one of the men who was selected to help out Stephen gets arrested because he's a follower of Jesus. And because he won't recant, by the time you get to the end of Acts 7, he's stoned to death. Okay, So this isn't right just a big event pop culture, right, being magnetized to some trend that's happening, this, this seems very genuine and very real. I mean, Acts 2, these, these 3,000 followers, the, the first thing that they do, they start gathering together in homes and meeting together in temple courts, and guess what? Selling all their stuff to take care of the needs of the ministry and all the people, okay? Now, that doesn't happen without heart change, right? People willingly just dropping their stuff to meet the needs. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, the world will know you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And so we're not just seeing this frivolous, trendy uh, attendance boom in the church. What we're seeing is something that seems to be very genuine, very real, and true spiritual growth. So we're going to talk about this this morning, what that looks like even on the ground here at Solid Rock in our community. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, a little background to the letter um, of 1 Corinthians. So the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, sending it from Ephesus to the church in Corinth. He had spent about 18 months on the ground in Corinth launching the church with the help of uh, Priscilla and Aquilus, and he's now in Ephesus, and uh, there's another guy who has come through, Apollos, who is, um, was, was a well-known speaker and, a, and a, very, a very intelligent man. He also had been doing ministry in Corinth, and so Paul is writing back to the Corinthians because he's heard, because this a lady named Chloe has showed up in Ephesus and said, hey, all the brothers and sisters back in Corinth, they're struggling. Paul said, what's going on? Well, they're starting to divide amongst themselves. Well, what are they dividing over? Well, those who are baptized by you are, are saying, I was baptized by Paul, so, so I'm right. And those who are baptized by Apollos, they're saying, no, 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 I was baptized by Apollos, and Apollos said this, so I'm right. And then those who are baptized by Peter, they're saying what? I was baptized by Peter. Come on now. I, I'm right. And so they begin to, to get into these camps, theological camps, if you will, and begin to divide. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians as a response to what he hears into that situation. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll pick this up. 
Paul begins with these questions. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's filled, God's building. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, Paul's addressing some issues. He's talking a lot about working for God and how God uses people. But first and foremost, what I believe the thrust of what Paul wants to communicate is this. Only God can cause growth. Right? I can plant, Apollos can water, but only God can cause the growth. He says it two times. And then later on he says, and you guys are God's field, God's building, God's temple, his spirit indwells in you. Paul and Apollos, we had a part in that, but let's talk about where real growth comes from. If you're taking notes with us, only God can. Only God can. Open eyes, change hearts, and cause spiritual growth. Only God can do this. Let me just share some personal um, testimony with you of how this played out in my life. So I... Um, like every other human being who's ever been born, uh, I came into this world with my own ambitions, with my own ambition to build my own kingdom and my own world. And every human being starts out this way. Whether you're uh, a person who has uh, high and lofty ambitions and you desire you know, public office or some sense of having the eye of the public in a high-level platform, making a great name for yourself, or maybe you're more introverted and quiet and you like things proper and quiet and in order in your home and, and so you don't thrust your opinion on others, but yet you like your own little world. That's how I came into this world. Now, if you don't, if you don't believe that's true, let me introduce you to my four-year-old, okay? Love him, God's created him in his image, but what we're praying for is that Jesus would radically save him and he would no longer live to build his own kingdom because he's working hard at that right now and he would begin getting involved in building God's kingdom Right, and so we come into this world hardwired, right, to make a great name for ourselves. And so for me, that was my ambition. And at the age of 15, I needed somebody to open my eyes. I went to, I've shared this story before, I went to a youth camp uh, on a whim, last minute whim, because one of my good friends told me girls were going to be there. I mean, if you don't think my motives were, were, were messed up, right, so I'm like, yeah, I'm in, I'm down, sign me up for that. So I go to youth camp to find girls, and what happened is that through the course of worship and somebody teaching from God's word, God unveiled and opened my eyes to see a greater reality. See, before that moment, the world was about me, and you guys just lived in it. That's how my world looked. And God began to draw back the curtain on reality, and I realized there's a bigger world and a bigger God of the universe here, and I need to follow him. In addition to that, God began to change my heart. I used to make fun of people, you know, who um, in church would sing songs about Jesus and about these weird things I didn't understand. Like, why are they singing about blood? That's kind of weird. The lady's got a big hat over here, 
right? And she's all dressed up, and this guy's got his suit on over here, and these kids are all well-behaved, and they're all singing about this weird Jesus thing. I didn't get it. What happened in my heart? God began to radically change my heart from that moment forward. And, and here's what you need to understand. It didn't happen overnight. Trust me. There were skeptics who were wondering if it was really true, because why? My spiritual journey looked a lot like this at first. It was a little rocky, but then eventually what happened? Growth began to take place. God began to do an amazing work in my heart. I oftentimes will equate spiritual growth to trees growing, and it's a lot like trying to watch a tree grow. Have you ever tried to watch a tree grow? Anybody ever seen a tree grow? No, you haven't. Why? Because it, it grows so slow. But everybody in the room has seen a tree after it's grown, right? After three years, five years, ten years, you've looked back and you've been able to see, whoa, that tree was growing all this time. Matter of fact, some of the, the, the most stable and the, most, the healthy trees actually go incredibly slow. The ones that grow fast and spring up quickly oftentimes won't survive the storm, right? And it's, it's the slow growth that builds stability and strength. So is your spiritual journey. This is what we call sanctification. That's true for my life. I needed God to radically open my eyes to see the world differently and to begin to work changing my heart and growing me spiritually slowly and surely over time. In Matthew 16, I want to look at something that Jesus said I think that is incredibly important to understand what Paul is getting at here. So in Matthew 16, Jesus is having a conversation with the 12, and he asks, I would say, the most significant question that he ever asked them. He said, who do you say that I am? And what Jesus was getting at in that moment was really the, the angst of why he came to earth. Who do you say that I am? Peter responds. You may remember how Peter responded. He said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus says back to Peter, you're absolutely right, Peter, but what? Flesh and blood didn't, didn't reveal that to you. You didn't figure that out on your own, but my father who is in heaven revealed that to you, opened your eyes to see that truth. And then if we pick it up in verse 18, look at what Jesus says about that statement. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on this statement, this theological truth that I am the Son, the son I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I mean, that's a powerful statement to make, right, knowing that there's still a death to take place and a resurrection, and he was going to be handing off this ministry to 11 barely faithful followers. But see, the, you hear the boldness of Jesus' voice? This is what I'm going to do. And, and, and we will hit resistance. We will hit persecution. The gates of hell will literally push back on my church moving forward. We read about it in Acts, but what does Jesus say? I will build a prevailing church on earth. I will build it. Only Jesus can do the work of growing people and changing hearts. Now, but look at what he says right after that. In verse 19, he says, and talking to his disciples, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loosen on earth will be loosed in heaven. What is Jesus saying? I'm going to give this great ministry of building a prevailing church to you. To you. I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it through you. Now, I don't believe these guys fully grasped at this moment the magnitude of what Jesus just said. None of these guys, I don't believe, in that moment thought about you and I sitting at solid rock 
March 13th, 2016. But that's what Jesus meant. You, you realize that, right? The prevailing church launched. What we read about in Acts has continued since then all the way to this day. And we're sitting here today because what Jesus said is true. And he did use these 11, 12 guys to launch his church. Now, in 1 Corinthians 3, you know, Paul says this, let's, only God can cause the growth. But here's the thing. I planted seeds and Apollos watered. We had a part, right, in what was, what was going on here. Well, this reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew um, chapter 9, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But um, Romans 10 is probably, probably the most clear place we can go to to understand what our role is in the prevailing church moving forward. What did Paul mean by, I planted in Apollos water? What does that look like? Uh, Romans 10 verse 13, uh, the apostle Paul writes this beautiful, beautiful promise. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Say, that's beautiful. That's big. I mean, he's got, the, he's got the globe of the world in his mind, spinning, populated, lots of people, people groups, languages, nations. And he says, every person on this earth, every person who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a big and beautiful promise, isn't it? But then look where he goes next. Verse 14, he says, with rhetorical questions, he begins to talk about how this works. Well, let me ask some questions then. How then will they call on whom, on him in whom they have not believed? Well, that's a really important question. How are they ever going to get there? Right? We want the world to be saved, don't we? Don't you want your neighbors who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus? They might become better neighbors. Maybe not. How about your coworkers? How about your family members? Right? I would almost guarantee every person in this room could list out three family members that you just really, really want and hope and pray will come to know Jesus, right? Well, Paul says, all right, well, here's the deal. How in the world are they ever going to call on someone, right? How are they ever going to believe in somebody in whom they have not heard? How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? Now, before you all default to, oh, that's your job. No, 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 no. This is the idea of making the proclamation of the gospel. This is for everybody who's in Christ. So think about that person you love deeply. And you know, you know they need Jesus. And Paul would say to you, I agree with you. But how are they ever going to believe in him unless somebody shares the gospel? Right? I mean, we can pray and we're going to see there's a role to, of praying for that person. But what we're praying for is what? that God would open up an opportunity for them to hear the gospel and believe and be radically changed for eternity. Still in Romans 10, how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Then in verse 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the words of Christ. There's nothing more beautiful than those who know, trust, and love Jesus, taking that good news to somebody who doesn't. That can be intimidating sometimes, can't it? I don't know that I'll have the right words to say. How do I start the conversation? It can also be hard work, right? You get in the conversation, all of a sudden it, it shifts away and it deflects or it gets confrontational, you back off, and then you try it again in a few weeks or a few months or next Christmas when you see him again. It's, it's really hard work. Well, let's think for a minute about 
putting this on the ground in our community. And, and to do that, I want to look at um, what it looked like for Jesus to be on the ground in his community in Matthew chapter 9, doing this thing he's called us to do, planting seeds, watering it, letting God cause the growth. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus is, is, is combing through some cities and villages. Matter of fact, it says, and, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. Okay, so he's, he's cruising through White Settlement, Saginaw, heading down through downtown Fort Worth, Hospital District, makes his way to Benbrook, Western Hills, out into Alito. He's kind of cruising the, the, the joined cities and communities. Now, here's what he's doing. In, in verse uh, 35, not only is he traveling throughout the cities and the villages, here's what he's doing on the ground. He's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I love this. Jesus is out meeting physical needs. We know in other accounts he's feeding people who are hungry, right? But he's not just meeting physical needs, right? He's also meeting eternal needs, right? He's not just out healing sicknesses and diseases because here's what happens, right? I mean, Lazarus got raised from the dead, but what happened is Lazarus had to die again. That was a temporary healing. Maybe God has worked in your life to bring about healing to some disease, but yet in the end, short of Jesus coming back, your, your body's still going to fail you, right? We see Jesus feeding thousands of people, but you feed somebody, and what happens 24 hours later? They're hungry again. So to, to be a lighthouse in this community doesn't just mean that we meet physical needs, but I love that he's out there touching people, you know, where they hurt, in the midst of their brokenness, meeting physical needs, but he's also teaching and proclaiming the good news of the gospel, Verse 36, now this is from Jesus' perspective. When he saw the crowds, what are crowds? Crowds are large groups of people, right? So he's cruising the community, but what he sees as he's walking through the community isn't buildings or houses or markets, or, right? What he sees are people. And when he sees the crowds of people, he had compassion on them. Another way to say that is his heart broke for them. And look at why his heart broke for the people in the communities. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so while Jesus was walking through the communities, he was seeing people who had physical ailments who needed to be touched and healed. He was seeing people who were hungry, who needed to be fed probably seeing people who were struggling with depression and, and all kinds of physical and psychological and emotional ailments. But ultimately, their problem was what? Not that they were hungry. They were sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus' heart broke with compassion for the people in those communities. And he saw them as harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Look at what he goes on to say here. And then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What did he mean by that? The harvest is plentiful. Here's what he meant by that. I've traveled the villages and the communities, and, and, and the, the, the sea of opportunity to touch and, and to help people is endless. The brokenness is every corner I turn, I see brokenness, hopelessness. I see people who I would describe as being harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's the harvest. 
So the problem, right, with growing the church isn't that there aren't people to reach, right? That's the same that's true for our community. Just a little bit, you're going to hear um, some of the numbers of, of people moving into this community alone. And so the, 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 the issue isn't that there's not enough harvest. What's the issue? There's not enough workers. There's not enough Pauls and Apollos out there planting seeds. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Can I just show you something here in this verse? Jesus is telling his followers to pray, and he tells them what to pray for. So he's telling his followers to pray for what? More workers. Now, the people in, in, in your life that we talked about earlier who, who need to come to know Jesus, we need to pray for those people. Matter of fact, at the beginning of this sermon series, we started a challenge to challenge one another to live out this mission in our lives. And part of that challenge was to pray for those people daily. So Jesus said, pray for them. But let me add one more thing to pray for. Pray that God would send somebody to them. And so as these disciples are praying this prayer, they also get to what? Be the answer to it. Now think about that. As you pray for that person who means so much to you, remember the words of Paul. How are they going to believe unless they hear? I know you don't think you're a great preacher and you have all the words right and but how are they ever going to believe in Jesus in whom they have never heard? And so Jesus uses this uh, farming metaphor to describe uh, the growing of his church. Now, one of the predominant word illustrations, metaphors that, that is used in the Bible all throughout and predominantly in the New Testament and especially with Jesus is farming. And I think that on one hand, um, that, is, that is the one is a perfect illustration of what we mean when we talk about growing. On the other hand, I think for us as a culture, there's disconnect between fully understanding what it means to farm, right? So um, just by show of hands, how many of you make a living by growing things in the dirt? Maybe a couple of you, probably, if you do. Nobody makes a living by farming. Okay, just, just try this then. How many of your parents made a living farming? A couple here. How about your grandparents? Yeah, and if you go to great-grandparents, I mean, grandparents, whether you know it or not, probably had a garden of some sort. Even if they didn't make their living, they ate out of a garden, right? So just two generations removed and there were no hands. So that tells me there is some disconnect between fully understanding what's taught in the scriptures in terms of farming. Let's talk about that for a minute. I think it's incredibly relevant for us to talk about farming in 2016. Why? Because we've become such a fast-paced, instant gratification culture and society that we are completely disconnected and the idea of farming is so foreign to us that we don't get fully what's being described here, right? Instantaneous results. You can set the push notifications on your phone to go off when there's a news break, when the weather turns, when this person posts on social media or this famous person tweets. Like you can have instant communications right here in your pocket. You get together with some friends, you start having a conversation, you say, well, did you hear about what happened to so-and-so today? No, I didn't hear. What's the first thing you do? Grab your phone, pull out Facebook or Instagram, you go, oh yeah, here it is. The so-and-so broke their arm, there it is. And so like instant communication, right? So, and, and often at your job places, when your boss wants something from you, when do they want it? Yesterday, now, right? Instant gratification. I'm, I, need to, I need to order 
such and such item. Well, let's, let's, you know, used to what we'd say. Well, put that on the grocery list, and we'll, we'll go to Walmart, and we'll look for it, and we'll start pricing. So what do we do now? Amazon, one click, prime, boom, boom, done, two days. And that's not even fast enough, right? Now we need the drones to go pick it up for us and bring it to us right now, by gosh, right? If I don't get that bullet blender right now, I'll never start my diet. One click, boom, where's the drone? And we become a very fast-paced, instant gratification culture and society, which means what? We are completely disconnected from what it means to farm. Completely disconnected. So let me just walk through what farming looks like for a moment. You see, there, before you ever get to the, the season of planting, there's a season of preparation. There's a season of getting things ready. And you know, before you ever till the ground, what do you have to do? You have to get the machinery ready. Make sure everything's working. All the tires are inflated. All the grease certs are greased. You have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? You have to think about what crop goes in this year. Are we crop rotating? Which, which, what are we going to plant in what field? What kind of watering are we going to do? Are we going to run the water through ditches? Or are we going to put in irrigation systems? We've got to set all that up ahead of time. Then we do the hard work of plowing, tilling, preparing the soil. And it, I mean, it's got to be the right timing. Last thing you want to do is plant seeds, and then what we call in West Texas, a gully washer comes through and washes away all your hard work. Yet, you don't want to plant seeds and it not rain either. So the, the farmer's preparing and planting and strategically getting ready to plant those seeds in the ground. A lot of precise work goes into that. Straight rows, perfect depth, covered up right. And then beyond that, what can he do? He can water, but he can never make the seeds grow. He can't. Right? There's never a time later where the farmer digs down in there, finds the seed, and pushes a button, and boom, it grows. Right? There's, there's a time period of waiting and faith, believing right, it's going to happen. And they've got everything staked on that. Now, this is the metaphor that Jesus uses to teach us about investing into other people's lives and inviting them into the kingdom. He calls us to do the hard work of the farmer. That's why we use the, the phrase here, invest and invite right? Because very seldom do you approach a person, share the gospel with them, boom, they become a Christian right there in that moment. It happens, right? It happens. But so often, if you know the backstory, right, you know there's a big, long season of preparation and tilling and getting them ready for that moment. That may be the thousandth time they heard the gospel. It may be the first time, but there's a preparation that goes into that person becoming a Christian. It's the hard work of the farmer. It takes persistence, some of you know this. You've tried to have that conversation with that person, right? And you're pushed back and you were shut down. Maybe you were made fun of or maybe even harsher than that. So you said, okay, I'll wait. I'll see you again next Thanksgiving. I'll see you again at the next company meeting. I'll see you again in a few days whenever you mow your grass again to your neighbor. And then what? You re-engage again, doing the hard work of the farmer. And it's a work of faith. It's a work of saying, I'm going to do everything I can to do everything I'm supposed to do and to do it well. At the end of the day, what do we do? We have to leave it for God. And only God can cause it to grow. If you're taking notes, as a church in this community, Jesus has commissioned us to plant seeds in the lives of the people around us by investing and inviting them into a relationship with him. The church in this community, 
Jesus has commissioned us to plant seeds in the lives of the people around us by investing and inviting them into a relationship with him. It may, it may go down like this. It may be your neighbor one day um, in the front yard says, hey, I noticed something different about you. Can you tell me how to become a Christian? And boom, you just tell them right there, pray for it. Boom, the angels are celebrating. Eternity lands on that person right there. It may happen that way. It may be that you invite somebody to church over and over and over and over and over and over again. You finally, you're like, I just don't think they're ever going to come. And then, you, and then you run into them out in the street or your coworker in the break room and they say, hey, tell me something. What time are your church services this weekend? Like, oh, wow, I, all this time. I thought I was wasting my time with you. Oh, I don't know. Let me, let me look real quick. Oh, here's our, here's our service times. And maybe that person comes here. So investing and inviting is going to look different, right, and depending on the situation. But ultimately, what are we inviting them to? A relationship with Jesus. Only he can do the work that needs to take place in their lives. Jesus had compassion on the people in the communities he visited. Let me just, let me just say some things here. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, right? He gave his only begotten life that whosoever would believe in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. God loves people, right? Not buildings, not styles of worship. He loves people. God loves to give eternal life to people. Again, not to buildings, right? Not to acres of grass. God is building his church with people, not buildings. God blesses and anoints people, not buildings. And God is calling us to invest and invite people into the kingdom, not just build bigger buildings. The mission of Jesus is to build a prevailing church on earth through his disciples. His disciples do the faithful work of the farmer, but only Jesus can cause hearts to change and the church to grow. Okay? He's calling us to build a prevailing church here on the earth. We do the faithful work of the farmer, but only Jesus can cause hearts to change and the church to grow. So here's what I want you to hear. I'm going to invite somebody up on the stage in just a moment to talk about new buildings and why we've even been talking about that lately. Um, but before we, before we do that, I want to let you know, like, you probably are so unaware, it's okay, but unaware of all the amazing work is God is doing behind the scenes. I'm looking out at a sea of faces, and I don't know everybody in the room, but about half of you I know, and I know something going on in your life significant. It's almost every Sunday that somebody walks into our church looking for answers, looking for hope, walks out with eternity. Right? Almost every Sunday somebody walks in carrying the bondage of addiction, um, the, the darkness of depression. And, and behind the scenes, like I wasn't even in most of the first service today, the whole first half. One of, our other, one of our other elders praying with somebody because of what God is doing in that individual's life. And so like community groups, meeting in homes, 140, 150 people a couple times a month, men's ministry, women's ministry. There's an amazing work that God is actually doing on the ground causing this church to grow. 
So the attendance that you see is just the byproduct of a real work God is doing in the hearts of the people here. What I want to do now is I want to bring David Darlene up on the stage. And if you would just join me in welcoming David Darlene. Um, he is one of our elders and he leads our new building team. David, come on up. Welcome. You know, part of our conversation over the last two and a half years has been buildings. And, uh, and so what I want David to do, you good to go? Nope, not yet. Hit that button there. Other side. We practiced this. Can you tell? Good job. You got it. You talk, they'll make you louder. All right. Okay. Maybe. All right. Um, David is one of our elders here at the church, and he leads our new building team. And, um, you know, for one, I want to let you know where we're at in that process. But what I love about this team and David's heart is every time I get a chance to talk with him about this, um, very, very little of our conversation is really centered around what it's going to look like. We have to talk about those kinds of things. But there's a heartbeat driving what we're doing that I want you to hear from the team through David. And so I want to start with just a couple of questions, David, to let everybody kind of know what's going on. We've been actually at this for two and a half years. You may not be aware. Preparing, planning, doing investigative work, research, that sort of thing. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, why don't we start there. Give us just an update on where we are in terms of the new building. Sure. Um, yeah, we started off a couple years ago educating ourselves, visiting with churches that had gone through building programs, talking with consultants, and now that's grown to the point where we're now interacting with an architect. Um, so what we're doing now is we're near the point where we're completing master plans for the property. These are not construction documents. This is an overall view of the property, placement of buildings, and that kind of stuff. And uh, we should get the final version or semi-final version within a couple of weeks. Yeah. And, uh, and so I've had a chance to see some of what he's talking about. And it's super exciting uh, to see what could be. So we're starting with the master site plan. God, how can, you know, this is paid for debt-free property and buildings. How can we use every square inch to your glory? Right? That's kind of a, one of our yes, goals. Yes, absolutely. And so, but this process started first with a full year of research, 2014, Right. Uh, Jason Martin, our worship minister, was leading that team. What did y'all do in 2014? Well, in 2014, we were looking at things like what's the growth rate here, going back into attendance records and trying to determine if we were, in fact, growing as a body. Um, and, and we were growing, yes. Yeah. And that was 2014. Then 2015, y'all spent about eight, nine months just researching, interviewing architects, trying to narrow it down to who would be best fitted for us and which one to, to go with and start the process with, right? Is that correct? Uh, that's true. Okay. And, yeah, we, we spoke with three different firms, and uh, we picked one called GFF out of Dallas, and they have a group called Church Works that specializes in church design, and that's uh, led by a man named Stephen Picard, and he's the guy we're mainly interacting with and, and some of the people that help him. Okay. Uh, and so we're about... Six months into the planning process, we're about to get some preliminary drawings on master site plan, all that kind of stuff. Um, I want to start there to give you that update. But more importantly, um, you just heard me preach through 1 Corinthians 3 and Matthew 9 and the church is people, not buildings. And so could you answer that question for us? Like, why are we even concerned about buildings? 
Well, we're not, we're not concerned about a building per se. Uh, the building is actually a tool, and it's a tool used for discipleship. And, of course, we're called to make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's, that's what a, this tool is used for. Uh, and I'm convinced that if we build this, we will see people hear the gospel and believe the gospel. I really appreciate it. Every time he says that in one of our meetings, he reminds us, wait, the building is just the tool. And so we need to think about what's the best tool, right, to be, uh, to be the church that God's calling us to be in this community, seeing people come to know Jesus, follow him in mission and that sort of thing. Yes. Um, more specifically, though, I think what, what would be helpful for us is why, why here? Why us? Why does Solid Rock need to be thinking about new buildings, the future, and that sort of thing? Well, we, we're seeing two things right now. One is the growth of, of this church. Um, we now have data that goes out over about 250 Sundays, uh, first service attendance, second service attendance. And when you look at all those data, I will tell you there is absolutely no question that our growth is consistent and steady over a five-year period, and it's continuing. <clears throat> so that's one factor. The other factor, though, is that this area, the, the population of this area is going to take off very significantly. And you recall the way uh, north of Fort Worth was a few years ago where we had open rangeland, former uh, ranch property up there, just drove up there freely, and then how that expanded so rapidly and it became very difficult with all the traffic. Uh, that's because most of the growth was north. Well, that's changing. Now the growth is switching to the west, to here. You've got some numbers on that, the, right? Yeah, let me give you some, some numbers to that effect. Um, this is the, the development uh, wind ridge just out on White Settlement here road is uh, putting in 1,284 homes. Uh, Live Oak Creek is now adding 500 to 600 homes. Again, that's on White Settlement Road. If you go out White Settlement Road, turn left and go down 3325, there's another development, Morning Star, that has a lot of earthwork going on right now. They're going to actually start building in the very near future. Uh, they're putting in 2,117 homes. Uh, and then there's Walsh Ranch. Uh, Walsh Ranch is fairly large. They're going to put in 18,000 homes. And that, that development expand, goes from south of Interstate 20 through the land between the split. And then above 30, it heads to the north almost all the way up to White Settlement Road. And there'll be a road coming up from that to tee into White Settlement Road at Cattle Baron. So all the commuting, a lot of the commuting traffic, at least in the north end of that development, is going to be coming in through White Settlement Road. And there'll be a lot of traffic there. Um, and we know that because this area does not have the infrastructure and the traffic here is going to be more difficult than what was up north. Let me read something from a city councilman that was written in the... In the uh, Fort Worth Star-Telegram. If you thought the north traffic jams were bad, it's going to be worse on the west side because we don't have any parallel arterials to I-20 and I-30. We are way behind the power curve. So that's what it's going to look like. Now, the reason I tell you that is not because we should be concerned about, so concerned about traffic, but just to illustrate to you the population dynamic change that's going to happen here uh, in the next years. Just right around us. Right. Well, part of the reason I had you come up today was to give the update and let everybody know all the hard work you guys have been doing behind the scenes, which I want to thank you for that. Um, but also, I wanted to let people hear the heartbeat by why we're even having these conversations. And uh, so I want to 
let you head off. Would you join me in just thanking the team uh, for their hard work? Thank you, David. Uh, if you have any further questions about that, feel free to approach David or somebody on, on the team. Here's where I want to land today. I want to land here. So the church is not buildings. It's what? It's people. It's people. Now, there's going to be a temptation and a, and, a, and a struggle to keep that focus going forward because it's exciting to hear what all David's talking about and the church, our numbers are growing, the community's growing, right? This is, these are the crowds that Jesus was talking about and commissioning us to have compassion on uh, to invest in them to see a harvest come. So we're excited about all of that, but we have to remember that the church is not buildings. It is people. Maybe that should become our motto. Just say that together once a Sunday. Here's why. I want to give you some warnings. I want to give us some warnings. Uh, just talking with other pastors, uh, listening to testimonies of churches that have gone through growth programs, listening to some of your stories. Here's some warnings I want, to, I want to issue for us as a church. First of all, in the midst of building programs, ch- churches can easily fall into materialism when they begin to value new, new buildings more than people. It's exciting to see dirt move, concrete poured, Buildings going up, things are new, they smell new, seats are new, right? Carpet is new, it's not stained. And it's really easy for, for even for Christians to shift into materialism away from the mission. Here's the second thing I want to mention. New buildings can easily become an idol that distracts us from Jesus and his mission for us in this community. And you know what the telltale sign of that would be if it happened here? Disunity and division. The moment we start quarreling over buildings, the building has become our idol, and we've taken our eye off of the mission. New buildings can easily shift the focus from inward real growth to outward appearances. Right? You build it, they will come. It's absolutely true. We put up a brand new building, a lot of people are going to come see what's happening. But we just read from God's word, that's not the kind of growth we're after. Right? And so when a lot of people show up, you can easily take your eyes off of right, the deep inward growth that's necessary and just look at the outward appearances of things. And if we're not careful, new buildings can easily become monuments of the past rather than launching pads for the future. That's all a new building is. It's a tool. Every new building we build can be tore down. There's nothing eternal about the buildings we build. They're simply tools that we desire to become launching pads so that we can engage fully in this mission that Jesus has called us to in this community and around the globe. We want to send missionaries out weekly into this community. We want to send missionaries out annually out into the the nations, to the ends of the earth. We want to engage in the prevailing church that Jesus is moving forward. I I want to end with this. Um, reminder and just a little bit of a, of a notification. So we started this sermon series looking at um, an invest and invite challenge, right? And our goal is not to be gimmicky or superficial with this, but to simply say, Jesus has called us to invest and invite. Let's think of some people in our lives and let's get after it. And so we started, and I challenge you on that first Sunday to think of at least one to three people that God has put in your life that you could begin praying for and reaching out to weekly to invest in their lives and to ultimately invite them to come to Christ. Um, today, we've got something for you to take with you as a tool. Um, these are just invitations to come to our Easter service. Now, this alone isn't the gospel, but it can be a tool that, that God uses to invite somebody to come to church at Easter and hear the good news of Jesus and become a Christian. Um, they're bundled up in 10, so we want you to take a bundle with you and your family. 
for neighbors, coworkers, anybody God puts in your life, just, hey, do you, do you, are you planning on going to church this Easter? You are? Do you have a church to go to? No? Well, hey, we'd love for you to join us at our church. Okay, not that hard. Also, we want to um, give you a chance to express that tangibly on the chalkboards out in the hallway. Um, so you may have seen them as you walk in. We're going to do this this Sunday and next Sunday just for you to kind of begin to feel the momentum of what God is doing here. Now, here's what we don't want to do. Don't put first and last names on there, okay? This isn't the gossip board, but first names, initials, my neighbor, my mom and dad, somebody put on there, my Grammy and Papa, um, whoever God has put on your heart to invest in and invite, we'd love for you to put a tangible expression of that with one of the dry erase markers as you walk out, just put something down as a reminder so we can get a, a grasp on the magnitude of what God is doing in and through our church to invest and invite people to come into his kingdom. So I want to leave you with that. I'm going to pray and ask our worship team to come back up now. If you would join me in praying.